0: The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co host, the editor in chief of Proceedings Magazine, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. Very special, uh, dare I say, could get emotional uh, episode of the podcast today. Um, we're here with the outgoing superintendent of the U.S. Naval Academy, a guy I've known since about 1980.
1: You're dating yourself, Ward. And well, I, Again. I, I,
0: it's it's facts, man. <laughs> Hashtag facts. Um, so it's uh, Vice Admiral Ted Carter is, is here with us. So uh, Admiral Carter, thanks for making the trek up to Beach Hall, and thanks for joining us today on the Proceedings Podcast.
2: Yeah, it's really special for me to be with you, Ward, and Bill, uh, for all you do at the U.S. Naval Institute and in Proceedings. Uh, just thrilled to be with you here. One of my last things I'll be doing before I turn over the reins.
1: And, sir, you are the 62nd superintendent of the Naval Academy, and your change of command is this Friday, the 26th. It is
2: at 1000, and it's actually going to be streamed live on uh, the Internet. Uh, I even have word that uh, there will be aircraft in the air flying through the Strait of Hormuz that will have the capability of watching this event. So it's going to (laughs) be unique. (laughs) That will be able to be seen uh, around the world and all the way into the air and even into space. Wow. And,
1: and you said 1,300 of your closest friends will be here for the change of command? You can't beat
2: it. <laughs> on on
1: Warden Field?
2: Uh, it's actually going
0: to be in Alumni Hall. In hey, Alumni Hall. Got it. Got it. So you were just mentioning that you did an event last night and and you just had your last haircut. So the emotions are flowing. So what, what, what are you feeling like right
2: now? Yeah, uh, every step I take around the yard is a flashback to 6 July 1977 when I was inducted with about 1400 of my classmates from the class of 1981 to uh, addressing the class of 2023 for my last kind of formal comments to a group of midshipmen uh, at the conclusion of their plebe rates competition last night which is now kind of an annual inside the plebe summer construct favorite Uh, so this is where one member of all 30 platoons Two platoons per company in plebe summer. Fifteen companies represent uh, their class and answering the toughest elements that come out of reef points, and uh, it's uh, it's it's done kind of in a spelling bee type of style where it's the last plebe standing, and uh, <laughs> it's just a fascinating. I wish it could be seen by more people, because, especially by uh, you know those of us who've lived through plebe summer because. Uh, I couldn't have done what they did uh, last night under that pressure with the admiral sitting right in front of them, all their classmates, and it, it, the place goes nuts. And it was an, a two hour event to get to somebody to miss a, a question. What was the final question that uh, made the champion? So uh, they're, they're singing, you know, what lesser known verses of, you know, Navy blue and gold, the third verse, they have to sing that verbatim. Um, well, they have to be able to describe every insignia of every sleeve rank and collar device of all of the services, uh, up you know to include the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, the Sergeant Major of the Army, um, and it's usually the little details that trip them up. You know, a single word. Uh, in my five years, I have never seen a midshipman do the qualifications of a naval officer. You know, the piece that's attributed to John Paul Jones on the first try without a single miss. And we had a young uh, midshipman, midshipman fourth class her- hearth, uh, do it on a first try verbatim. And I, it watered my eyes. I actually gave her a coin. And, <laughs> and in addition to the, the winning uh, plebe, uh, but that that piece in the middle of the contest was eye-watering to me. I had never seen in my five years, midshipmen not have to go through a couple to get it exactly right. So a number of highlights there. Um, it's interesting, uh, of all the hard questions, the one that tripped them up the most was uh, uh, the graduating year of the current Commandant of Midshipmen. They, <laughs> it's, it's, for whatever reason, they they were dancing around his class of 92. They got 90, 91, 93. So at the final end, they lost the last couple because they just somehow that went by them. They knew what year I graduated. but uh, So anyway, it was a fascinating night. So let's go. Let's go way back and and go over the high points of your your career. So
0: commissioned the class of eighty one, selected naval flight officer, went down to VT ten VT eighty six, got Rio, um, and you wound up going F fours yeah. um, in
2: Japan. So what was what was that like? So uh, this is a theme that I've carried during my five years here at the Naval Academy to speak to our midshipmen about the idea that you always do your best. Uh, But be prepared when your first choice doesn't land in your lap, which was my case uh, all the way through the very almost my entire career that might surprise people. But that was certainly the case going into aviation. Uh, I went to Pensacola as a pilot like uh, so many of us, you know, that back then we couldn't get your eyes fixed, Uh, failed my first eye test. Uh, went naval flight oh, officer. Oh, so you did
0: not select NFO during I did not. service selection. No, okay.
2: I did not. I okay. selected pilot and okay. uh, failed my first eye test before we got too far into it. Uh, went right into the uh, NFO program. Uh, was going to go P3s, to be quite honest. And... Um, uh, the commanding officer of this lesser-known outfit called Naval Fighter Weapons School showed up. This was well before the movie and all that, and I was just enamored by how they carried themselves, what they talked about, what it was like to be in fighter aviation. That's when I decided I wanted to go into fighters, and of course, like anybody in the you know the early '80s, I wanted to fly in the F-14 Tomcat. Didn't get that. Got F-4 Phantoms. I was the last of that selection group, even though I graduated second in my. VT86 class, was devastated.
0: So you and Dan McElroy were like the last guys Dan, Dan to Dan was get just a F-force. little bit behind me. Me and okay.
2: Bob Schrader, okay, okay. Uh, okay. Rip Schrader, right. uh, my classmate, we were in that group. Anyway, long story short, uh, Lynn and I, uh, newly married, we decided that, the, and at first we thought we had a choice to be on the East Coast or go do this overseas opportunity. We went to uh, Japan to serve on the USS Midway. Uh, VF-161, I went through the one of the last classes to go through the FRS, the Fleet Replacement Squadron in Oceana, VF-171, the Flying Aces, and everything I thought about going into the F-4 community was completely wrong. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. How so? To be trained by the former Top Gun and Vietnam era, they were all still in those squadrons. They fought to get back into the last F-4 squadron to be carrier-based at the height of the Cold War. Uh, to be tutored by Willie Williamson and John Patton, uh, and then the future Top Gun instructors uh, Steve Cowboy Harden, uh, Jerry Gallup, uh, Tom Pyro Hendricks, uh, Dana Potts—all of those names that are well known within the Top Gun community—they were all in my squadron, and I learned so much. Um, I flew with a, a Vietnam Riverine Swo turned fighter pilot named Vance Tolson. And uh, Vance and I had probably one of the most memorable flights out of the many, many, many over 6,000 flight hours and 2,000 carrier landings uh, on board Midway uh, in the winter of 84. So, this was a, a three carrier operation, Carl Vinson on one of her first deployments, Enterprise, in the middle of her life, and Midway nearing the end of her life. And on this particular night, normal flight ops, you know, Cold War, you know, going up there and, and dancing with the Soviet bombers. Uh, Three carrier ops, all within a couple hundred miles of each other. The other two carriers had already closed up, and we were the last still flying. And as we came down, first down the chute, uh, northern sea of Japan, typical winter, the uh, the sea swell just took over the entire ship. So the ship was moving like none of us had ever seen before. And this was before the blisters got put on midway. So she was susceptible to a lot of heave, not so much the roll. Uh, The screws were coming out of the water. It was that kind of a dynamic night. Uh, not that any of us could see it, but that's what <laughs> was happening on the flight deck. Uh, to make a very, very long story short, Steamer and I went around 12 times trying nice to land. Times. We touched the deck only twice. We refueled four times, and the last time we refueled out of a KA six, uh, a, a guy that we from that era know well, uh, Hound Dog McLean was the A six pilot. He went on to be a Blue Angel. He was the last tanker airborne. Uh, So there were only two airplanes in the air, and we obviously having our night in the barrel, he gave us an extra 1,500 pounds of his own fuel and broke radio silence and said, steamer, slap shot, I know this is your night. You need this more than me. And, of course, that son of a bitch went down and landed on first try. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) We went around and around, and uh, we were now down to, uh, you know, trick or treat. Trick or treat meaning land or fly into the water. And Chuck McGrail was the CEO of the Midway. Again, radio silence era. you know A lot of us forget what it was like to operate where only LSOs talk to you when you know, it was safety of flight. And he broke radio silence. It was like the voice of God. We knew who he was. I mean, he used a call sign that I, I don't even remember what it was, came over the radio and and said, Steamer, you're night in the barrel. We know the, the situation. You have, you have three choices on this pass. We can rig the barricade. You can fly into that or cut your engine and land in that. Uh, You can fly up the side of the ship while you're in controlled flight and you have fuel and do a controlled ejection and we'll pluck you out of the water. Or you can make one more attempt to land. So the water temperature was about 42 degrees. Sea state is, you know, 20 feet. Um, We are supposed to be in wetsuits. Back then, you know, it was better to die than look bad. And we were prepared to do that because we weren't wearing wetsuits. And Steamer and I decided we couldn't go in the water we probably wouldn't survive. We, we were thinking about 45 seconds of dexter, or finger dexterity to be able to get out of our stuff, and it was dark and sea and state. Uh, no F-4S Phantom two had ever flown into the net. We didn't want to be the first to test that at night. So we said, no matter what, we're going to put the jet in the wires. No matter what, we'll crash the jet into the wires and take our chances. And that's what we did. Uh, we did a Stutka dive bomber, never saw the ball in the lens as we crossed the ramp. Uh, we were getting screamed at for power because we just went to—steamer went to idle and nosed the jet over. And mercifully, the deck came down. As we landed, I could have had a cup of coffee in my hand. It wouldn't have spilled. And we trapped. And uh, we had been trying to land for two hours and 15 minutes on top of a two-hour mission. And it was the kind of mission where you should have had to be pulled out of the cockpit to get out. I bounded out. I thought it was the most exciting thing I'd ever seen. This is when you got medicinal brandy in the ready room for an event like that. And that was the night I found out I was going to Top Gun.
0: Oh, fantastic. Steamer
2: was the opso. He told the commanding officer he wouldn't have got through that without the supersonic cheerleader behind him. And uh, that was the beginning of when I decided it was uh, I had a place in the Navy. So your first shore duty was as a Top Gun instructor? Then? So I went to Top Gun in the last F-4 class as the movie was being filmed— so I was there with Rat Willard and Jaws Winnefeld and and that crowd. Bio and Hollywood Yep, and all of Jaws them. Hollywood and, was one of yeah. my uh, instructors. And uh, we had a phenomenal experience. Uh, I was there with Tom Cruise and his first day at Miramar and all that. Uh, I went back to Midway uh, post-Top Gun, just kind of like the movie, and we got involved in some interesting ops that we can talk about later. And then I went back as an instructor right after that, as the movie was being premiered. Okay. To back, Miramar.
1: back to Midway with F4s or had they? Trans- no, we were still in F4s. So F4s I was too.
2: on the last fly off of the F4s in 1986. I did not go back to Midway when they transitioned to the Hornet. I yeah, stayed so at Miramar from 86 to 90. Midway never had
0: Tomcats, remember? Right. So the differences, I mean, remind me,
2: Admiral, three wires. Yeah. Right. How many cats? So two cats, bow okay. cats only, um, three wires. The Midway did actually land two Tomcats one time ever from CAG 11, VF 213 and 114. uh, And I remember that. And to watch them, they could only put one on a cat at a time. And it completely took up the whole bow. So it was, you know, it was a remarkable sight picture. And thank God they didn't break down. (laughs) So, what
0: was it like being an instructor at Top Gun, culturally, um, so forth and so on?
2: So I, I was in VF one twenty four. I was a, a, was a Tomcat instructor at the Fleet Replacement Squadron, but we were so uh, intertwined with the Top Gun and VF one twenty six. So you left was, to the Phantom Squadron, went right, and went right, as a right to the rag. Instructor. Right, okay. I was a rag instructor, got uh, my qualifications in the Tomcat, and I was, uh, you know, there with the VF one twenty four and uh, Top Gun during that probably defining time of Miramar from you know nineteen eighty six to nineteen ninety. Uh, it was as different a time as anything else I can remember in the Navy. We were at the height of the 600-ship, approaching 600-ship build under the Reagan era. Uh, we had uh, easily over 200 Tomcats on the flight line. Everything was buzzing. There was money. Uh, we were flushed with students. Uh, I had uh, over 1,000 hours of flying in the F-14 Tomcat within my first two, my first two years of flying. So, you know, over 500 hours of flight time a year. So that's kind of operations we were doing. And um, my biggest role and contribution during that time was uh, as a a radar intercept officer, I was teaching young pilots how to land the F-14 out at sea. So I started to become what we call a bounce and carrier qualification RIO, and that became where my forte was. I had a... Uh, I was taught well in the Phantom community. I was very comfortable in the backseat, maybe some of that born from that night in the barrel. I got a thrill out of seeing the light bulb come on for young aviators and learning how to land the F-14. Of course, as we all know, that's the first time they land anything at night. And I did that for four years. I had uh, a little over 400 carrier landings just as an instructor backseater uh, during that era. 32 Category 1 pilots that I took to the boat. Holy nice. smokes. And never had a disqual. Seventeen of them seventeen of them had been prior disc calls. So that's where I made Very my impressive. that's where I made my mark. Yeah.
0: I mean just for the audience's uh S.A., I mean, that's, those numbers are astronomical. Yeah. The first ones especially, uh, you know, I was a RAG instructor. I think I did half a dozen right. maybe, you know, during my two years as a RAG instructor. That That's amazing. It amazing was exhausting.
2: Numbers. I flew a lot. Uh, for every pilot, you do a minimum of 50 flights where you do uh, field carrier landing practice. We would go out to San Clemente Island. So it was a lot of late-night flights. You get to know each other super well. I probably learned more about leadership and psychology inside a cockpit during that era than anything else I ever did. Fantastic. So what happened? What was your tour after that? So I went to VF-21 as a a super junior officer and then eventually department head, and that was uh, right at the beginning of uh, Desert Shield. I was on board USS Independence uh, off Diego Garcia when Saddam invaded into Kuwait, and we were first on station. I was one of the first boots on ground in Bahrain on 9 August. Uh, I helped coordinate the first overflight into the Gulf of fighter jets to get into the Iraqi airspace to let them know that there was an American presence. So that was kind of a Forrest Gumpian moment, if you will, uh, to be in Bahrain. Remember, there was almost nothing there. We had a, a two-star admiral called Commander Joint Task Force Middle East. We had four tankers that were U.S. Air Force and really no Air Force fighter jets. So There was no Fifth Fleet. This is before there was a Correct. Fifth Fleet. Correct, right. And uh, myself and— uh, Uh, Back then, he was a Navy captain, Spook Yakely, and I and a handful of others were first uh, boots on the ground uh, there to get that presence known. And I was there in the command room when Saddam's troops, some 200,000 plus, massed on the Saudi border on 10 August, and nobody knew whether they were going to come across. And they had just seen our fighter jets on their radar, and he stalled. And history hasn't proven why he stalled. I guess we can't ask him. Um, <laughs> no, we cannot <laughs> ask him. Uh, nope. But, uh, you know, there there are many that were in the scene and in that room that night that believed that their troops stalled because they would be in the open the next morning and our fighter jets would would have major impact on them and they couldn't be defended. So, you know, 25 percent of the world's oil reserves sitting in Saudi Arabia, not affected by them stalling, by the by really carrier presence being there. Uh, on that first flight. Probably a story that's not told well enough.
0: So where were you when it went from Desert Shield to Desert Storm?
2: So we stayed there through Desert Shield, and then we did a turnover with, ironically, USS Midway uh, and headed back home just before uh, the Desert Storm big fight broke out. We went back to Miramar, and then we were the turnaround ship and squadron to replace Midway in Japan, where I did go back. And I I stayed on with CAG-5, Served as operations officer from '91 uh, to '93. Uh, was a, a critical part of st- starting the operations in uh, the island of Iwo Jima, where we created airfield. Uh, was the first to develop uh, operations down uh, in uh, Darwin, Australia. We were the first presence to go down there and do operations there, and uh, we, we're now moving Marines there. So we started all that back in '92, uh, and in. Ju- Enjoyed that whole transition of putting Tomcats in Japan for the first time uh, and then seeing uh, Independence go as really the kind of the second Ford presence aircraft carrier of that era. Um, following that, I went to uh, uh, U.S. Central Command where I was a Tomahawk planning officer uh, and served there under uh, a couple of fairly uh, famous four star generals there, uh, Binnie P., uh, Army four star and uh, Joe Hoare, uh, Marine Corps four star, and uh, got called up to be in the front office. I was a senior executive aide for uh, Butch, Butch Neal, uh, our Marine Corps three star, went on to be the uh, ACMAC of the Marine Corps. Uh, so I learned a lot of senior planning and uh, some pretty uh, intense Tomahawk mission planning uh, when we did the, some of the shots into a Zafranaya in the Iraqi Intel Service headquarters in the summer of '93. So, were you in Riyadh or in Tampa? Where Where were you? I went stationed? everywhere. Uh, we were stationed in uh, Tampa uh, at the headquarters, but uh, did a lot of time in Washington D.C. and uh, and on the, in Riyadh. Okay. Yeah.
0: What happened after that? Where'd you go? So then I got to. So that was your first non flying tour. It a was. T-LAM tour. Okay. That's
2: right. Um, but then I uh, had the privilege of uh, selecting for command. And I went back to Miramar as we were making the decisions to consolidate the F-14s all in Oceana. now the decision was made to close Miramar. And I went back to Miramar to be the chief of staff for the fighter wing.
0: So I was in that meeting when that decision was made. In yeah. Because I was brutal. a RAG instructor
2: at F-101. It was brutal. Yeah. Uh, and this is uh, circa fall of 95 and the decision to close Miramar. In like fact, Dan Chop I think, was the RAG CEO. Right. That's correct. Right? He was
0: in that. May he rest in peace. Great guy. Yep. He was the 124 skipper. He was not happy about the decision.
2: No, and, you know, some of the post-tailhook shenanigans I think were part of the decision that the, the root of all evil was coming from Miramar at the time. Um, anyway, I went back there, uh, served in that capacity for about a year and a half, was actually the fighter wing commander as a barely made commander as we moved the Commodore out of Miramar and consolidated uh, in the East Coast. and We still had two fighter squadrons flying out of Miramar as well as the, the remnants of VF-101 Det West with the six F-14Ds flying out there. And, I again, I got to continue to fly and uh, go to the carrier and, and all that. Did um, you have some D, D hours? I did. I ended up with about 200 hours in the D. Uh, of all the airplane types I ever flew, it was probably the one I was least comfortable in, ironically. Really? Because the technology was so beyond anything I had known in the F-14A, it, I just needed more time. Um, and, granted, I didn't have all the toys that we eventually put in the D, so we were just kind of operating the software. Um, but as it would turn out, I would go be the XO and then CO of VF-14, which had the oldest F-14As in the business. So I went back to the, you know, the airplane that I knew well, and, uh, obviously returned to the East Coast, did two deployments with the, that squadron, one is XO on the Kennedy on its last, supposed to be last deployment, should have been, uh, cause she was in tough shape. And that was a Bosnia... Uh, effort on that deployment. And then uh, we turned around and then probably had one of the deployments of a lifetime Uh, in command. uh, Serving uh, uh, had taken over in November of 98. And as we got ready for deployment in February of 99, it was obvious that the Kosovo thing was going to explode. And we went from a diversion from being a, a Gulf carrier on Theodore Roosevelt to now being involved in the uh, Operation Allied Force, and Kosovo Operations. So uh, as commanding officer, I mean, we had to shift gears. We were new with the Lantern pod, so we were the second air wing to really deploy with that. Uh, a lot of my crew had never even seen it, and were putting it on the flight deck.
0: So explain to the listeners what that is. It was a huge game-changer, but explain. Yeah, what the so lantern the
2: Lantern was a, a pod that was really designed for the Air Force F-16 Uh, Some of those that were very smart, like Devo DeVray and others had, through uh, the F-14 integration system, had come up with these requirements for how we could take this pod and modify it and basically bolt it on to the F-14. Larry Slade was in that too, former uh, Desert Storm
0: POW. Right. Um, He was involved in that.
2: So uh, this was a a low-altitude navigation infrared pod that uh, was – Basically attached to an F-14, and it was a game changer. It made the F-14 go from a, you know, an air superiority fighter to now all of a sudden a legitimate air-to-ground game changer. And you know, with all respects to other squadrons that had had some bombs come off the airplanes uh, in uh, operations in Iraq, we were really the first air wing, VF-14 and VF-41, to go to war with it uh, in a day-to-day basis. So uh, six pods and a 10-squadron airplane. We figured out how to mate that thing to the airplane and make it work. Uh, big screen TV in the back. So basically its own inertial navigation system that only basically spoke to the F-14. It was much more accurate than the F-14 uh, INS. And uh, I led the first strike into Kosovo with that. Uh, with Scooter Moyer, a two-time Blue Angel pilot, and that was probably the most contentious of my uh, roughly 100 flights uh, in combat uh, under serious fire that first night we went in to go out take a, uh, a fueling facility out at Pristina Air Base to take all the fuel away from the uh, the Serbian MiGs. Uh, remarkably, nobody got hit. Uh, we hit the target and we got everybody home. Uh, and, you know, it went on from there. We did 55 days of combat in the Kosovo Theater, and then we turned right around after a very nice port visit in Palma. uh, We went through the Suez Canal and went right into combat operations at the tail end of Operation Southern Watch in Iraq, and that was 33 days of dedicated, almost as intense, again, not well spoken to because, you know, we were in limited combat ops, but we were under fire. Uh, We were taking out bunkers and— um, Sam sites and uh, it was a it was an unbelievably interesting combat deployment. Every single pilot and Rio had multiple multiple air medals. Uh, not one of my aviators came home without a combat V on their chest.
0: So what our listeners may forget, because when you think of the F14, of course the the, the average listener thinks of Top Gun and air to air, but the Tomcat based on the sea story you were just telling, got more lethal as it got older. Yeah, um, It had some other stuff like digital flight controls and whatever else. But the irony for, for to my eye is when we did the Bosnian War in 95 on the last cruise of America, the planning doors were shut to us by right. the Hornet Mafia because we didn't have Lantern. Right. And you know we had relieved TR and VF-41. They'd done one dumb bomb mission, and they strung a string about halfway across Bosnia. And they're like, okay, we're done with the Tomcat doing conventional bombing. And so we did a lot of tarps, recce, um, and a lot of extension of the Hornet, just you know, dial in the right coordinates, and they'd, they'd guide the bomb. So ironically, subsequent to that, with you guys and then later in uh, uh, OEF, um, suddenly the Tomcat is the precision bomber of choice. As you said, the resolution's better in the backseat than the, the Nighthawk pod. Um, so if you get,
2: you know, don't hit the mosque, hit the, you know,
0: communication center, you're going to you're gonna tag the Tomcat.
2: When we brought our videotapes back to the OPNAV staff uh, post-99 deployment, and I was in the room and I, you know, narrated some of them. The decisions about buying a two-seat Super Hornet changed. Uh, not that we made it 50-50, but there was a decision that we needed to have a two-seat Super Hornet squadron on the flight deck of every aircraft carrier. And that came out of the the lessons learned from that Kosovo deployment. We were doing buddy-lazing for almost the entire F-18 community. Uh, We were doing it for other NATO aircraft. Uh, And in fact, uh, the forward air control mission was, I would say, uh, built on that deployment. Um, Every one of our forward air controllers uh, left that deployment with a, a Distinguished Flying Cross. Uh, for various different reasons uh they were the unsung heroes of that and they were almost all lieutenants so what you you, you relinquished command in what year i relinquished command in 99 and that's an interesting story The i had been home for two days from that deployment i already had the fitness report that would tell me i was going to go be a CAG i was thrilled with that and uh The the board that met to determine who was going to go into the nuclear power community had already met, and I had already sent my letter in saying, hell, not just no, but hell no. And then I got a a phone call at like 10 o'clock at night from Admiral Tim Bo Keating. said, congratulations, you've been selected for the nuclear power program. And I responded by saying, have you seen my grades? (laughs) And he said, yes, we have, and we are confident you can make it through that program. And I called my buddy uh, Mike Nasty Manazer and learned that he would gotten a similar phone call. And we decided if one was going to go, we were both going to go. So we both said yes and started that year-and-a-half pipeline to go through the nuclear power program. So and I, and how was that? Hardest thing I ever did. Uh, there were many nights uh, studying for that that I wish I was under fire. It <laughs> was that hard. Um, and uh, we all made it through. Uh, Kevin O'Flaherty, so there were three class of 81 Navy guys in the class and along with Rip Dykoff, uh, all much, much smarter than I am. Uh, I was successful in great measure because of the way that they studied, the way they taught me how to study. It uh, expanded my mind, quite honestly. Uh, a lot of people ask why I can get up and deliver a message with not a whole lot of notes or any notes. And I would tell you it's what I learned in Power School. And uh, I embraced the whole concept of what they teach you in that. And uh, again, game changer for me. It wasn't my first choice. I accepted it when I was asked, and uh, you know everything that good that happened to me in the rest of my career came from that. I was, so,
0: what, what is that? Is it how to be productive with a study session? How to reading comprehension? What 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 is that?
2: Yeah, it's an element of making sure that you can retain information, whether it be numbers, formulas, concepts, within an a prescribed amount of time. You don't have limitless time to put that information in your head, whether it's direct regurgitation or be able to uh, do an analysis and take not just formulas but concepts and apply them to come to a discrete answer. And I learned that there. I mean, I took 53 exams in the nuclear power program. Two of them were eight-hour finals, multiple oral boards and of course the pucker factor for failing is you get kicked out you know you don't pass go you don't ever command again you don't you, everything goes away um, so yeah learning under pressure and so I, are you in 05 06 at this time I was in what? 05 uh, hadn't, I I selected for 06 at the very end of that program and then the, the reason that carrier XOs are such a happy lot is they get to go to that job right after that year and a half. So everything is good and glorious when you get to go be a carrier executive officer. And I was on the carriers, our newest aircraft carriers on the Harry S. Truman. And uh, that couldn't have been a a more exciting, interesting time. Um, You know, I was XO when 9-11 happened uh, and, you know – all the different reaction from that. We were not ready to deploy right away. Uh, We ended up being kind of the showcase carrier for all the uh, uh, American sentiment that came out of uh, 9-11. We hosted a lot of people. We did a a nationally televised show down in Fort Lauderdale for the American public. Uh, And then we deployed at the beginning of what would become OIF in 2003. I left in the middle of that deployment um, and then uh, went to a joint job, another shore-based job, uh, for a very brief time, I'm sorry, no, I went back and uh, did my deep draft. That's when I went uh, and commanded uh, my combat oiler, uh, USS Camden, uh, out in Bremerton, Washington. Out in Bremerton. Right. So a lot of moving. You're all over the place. Yeah. East coast to west coast, okay. family, uh, a lot of challenges, kids in high school. Uh, we, we made it through as a family. Uh, my Camden experiences uh, was so good That if somebody had given me a piece of paper and said, you can be a captain and the commander of a combat oiler for the rest of your life, but you have to sign this and never do anything else, I probably would have signed it. It was that fun. Uh, Independent operations. I got to pick up uh, the USS Ronald Reagan as she was coming out of Norfolk to move uh, past her commissioning to go to San Diego. So I took uh, USS Camden and two destroyer escorts out of Bremerton and went all the way down to the southern tip of South America. You didn't go through the ditch? did not. Oh, okay. Uh, and she's the largest ship you could actually fit through the ditch, and she would eventually go through the ditch, but I didn't take her through. Um, but we picked up Ronald Reagan and uh, did a couple port visits um, and came home to a, an incredibly glorious return for uh, a namesake, Ronald Reagan, who had sadly passed away during the ship's transit. Uh, So that was in uh, 2004. Okay. And then from there, I went to a joint job waiting for carrier selection. I was selected to command uh, USS Carl Vinson. And unlike or just like the rest of my career, it didn't go the way I had scripted it. I had envisioned going on a ship like Nimitz or Ronald Reagan or Truman and deploying once or twice as a carrier CO, being on a bridge, running operations. And then all of a sudden I was asked to take a ship through its midlife refueling and complex overhaul about the most unfun, unsexy thing that you can do to an aircraft carrier. Take it into the shipyard, do a frame off restoration like it's a 57 Chevy, take the nuclear reactors apart, rebuild them, rebuild all four catapults, all arresting gear, completely decable the ship, completely recable it, take all the radars off, re-step the mast, and do that for $2 billion in three and a half years. And quite honestly, we had been 0 for 2. Nimitz and Eisenhower were grossly over budget over time to the point where uh, Admiral Zortman called me in the office because I I questioned him. I said, you know, I'm, I've got a pretty good reputation for being a good ship driver. I had proven that with Camden and I had my qualifications. I said, I, I thought I was perfect to go take a carrier to sea. He said, uh, Slapshot, we need somebody that can get a refueling complex overhaul to a win. If we don't, if we can't get the next one right, the whole program will probably have to go away. It's too expensive, and we chance can't get it wrong. Have they been on time since then? Has it
1: has it come back to where it's supposed to be?
2: So we've had uh, more success. Uh, Carl Vinson was the first that delivered under budget, and I'll tell you a short, quick, funny story about how that came to be. Uh, I took command from uh, Kid Donegan, who had gotten the ship under good start, Uh, They had basically just gotten it into dry dock and got started. Um, But because of the way overhauls and all that stuff works, uh, we were already about $40 million in the hole on a $2 billion budget. That that may not sound like a lot of money, but you got to make up $40 million, then it's not likely you're going to do that. So I had two – epiphanies, if you will, about a year into my command. First thing was every week we would have a, a scheduling meeting that talk about the progress. It would be a four-hour meeting. And, of course, everybody that's important, all the supervisors, they're all in the meeting, which means nobody's doing anything.
0: Which shipyard is this? Where, where this are you This is located? Newport News. The, the only Newport place
2: they can do it. And uh, it, it struck me that, you know, and we're not making any decisions. It's all informational. And it's all to feed the beast, you know, me and I said, you know, this is going to have to change. So we completely re-scripted that meeting to a one-hour meeting. Uh, and if there were decisions to be made, we would hold those offline. The second was, uh, and this is a, a life lesson that all uh, all good ideas actually do come from Irish pubs. Um, <laughs> I was in Washington, D.C. for a meeting at Naval Reactors. And uh, my wife and I are at uh, the Irish pub there, right there in uh, Pentagon City called Sine. And as we're sitting there, it's a Friday afternoon. I look up over the bar, and there's a clock. It's not like a regular clock, it's a countdown clock. And it's a countdown clock to, you know, St. Patrick's Day. Days, hours, minutes, seconds, tenths of seconds. (laughs) And it hit me. That's what we need. We need that on the bridge, on, on the quarter deck of the ship so that every worker, every person that comes on knows exactly how many days hours, minutes, and seconds to the next whatever milestone we were chasing. So we did that. We spent money and bought a clock and put it on there. So when it was crew, move aboard, you know, start one reactor, whatever the next big event was. And all of a sudden, we started having success. Instead of having people you know, redo work one, two, three times for failed whatever installation, we were getting what we call first pass yield. And we were making our milestones, which meant that the cost for Lara – And then I still had this $40 million bogey to try to make up. So we were kind of holding our head. And uh, another thing started to happen. Every Friday about 1 o'clock, we would somehow have a small fire somewhere on the ship, more what we would call maybe a trash can fire. But any fire on board a ship, especially in the shipyard, you're going to react. Fire department comes. You have to get everybody off the ship. So by the time you go through all this machination, it's like 1,500. So it's like, eh, it's not even worth getting everybody back on. So Fridays ended up being about a half day of work. And this thing happened weekend. So we started calling Friday, Fire Friday. And I'm like, you know, this has got to stop. So it turns out that in every space, remember, on a carrier, you got about 3,200 spaces, defined walled spaces. And when there would be hot work in there, the you know, usually the machine welder or whoever from the shipyard would be in there and there would be a fire watch. This is where back in the day, the company would uh, hire what we would call minor felons <laughs> to do that work. And you can imagine what their you know give a crap factor was. In fact, they were happy to see this thing you know burn for a little bit and get off the ship and blah, blah. You can see how it went. So again, I had this epiphany. What if we put a sailor on the fire watch instead of the minor felon? And it would help with the coordination between the shipyard and the ship because I still had a full complement of three thousand sailors, and they were doing some amount of work. And we didn't pay the minor felons that contract. Well, turned out that contract was worth about forty million dollars over the course of the whole project. So that's how you made it to bogey. And I got, I had to fight some very senior flag officers about putting work on the backs of my sailors, but I won that one. Uh, and this was the power of being a commanding officer where I, my direct report was to Naval Air Forces uh, out in, the, in San Diego. And that ended up being the difference. And Firefighter Friday stopped, production went up, and we saved that money. Fantastic. And Carl Vinson ended up being delivered, albeit a couple weeks late because we were in the middle of competition between, again, Enterprise and the uh, the build of George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, but – Carl Vinson is still enjoying a wonderful life, second half of life, because of the quality work that was done on her in the shipyard. She did three back-to-back-to-back deployments, uh, unheard of, and as uh, maybe not as well-known as some other events in naval aviation. That was uh, the final resting place for uh, bin Laden when he was brought out by SEAL Team 6. Uh, and an Osprey that had never landed on an aircraft carrier. And with very few people knowing about it, he was uh, sent to a watery grave uh, uh, unmarked uh, off Elevator 4, off Carl Vinson.
0: The CO was a classmate of mine, Bruce Lindsay? Yes,
2: who um, turned over with me. On oh, that. okay. So right. I
0: saw him at Fleet Week in San Francisco when they brought Vinson up for that, uh, and we took him to dinner in North Beach, and uh, he allowed that that had happened. was not specific, obviously, on where,
2: but uh, right. that's a very cool story. Uh, Birdie is about to become the Gray Owl. I will be uh, oh, returning that with title oh, okay. on my turnover day Friday. So ah. Birdie will become the Gray Owl oh, as cool. the oldest serving NFO in the Navy. So back to the uh, overhaul
1: thing. For an aircraft carrier, a couple of months ago, we had a, a number of articles about the decision not to refuel the Truman midlife. Uh, and the savings and how that cost savings was going to be turned into uh, advanced weapons systems, et cetera. Thoughts
2: on that? Opinion on that? So I have had the privilege of speaking to every uh, coordinating team for all of the RCOHs refueling complex overhauls that have occurred since Vincent, Try to make sure that we could replicate the goodness that we got out of Vincent. And we've had, obviously, some continued success. I would say that although it's still an expensive program, and now I think it's valued at about $3 billion compared to the $2 billion that we spent on her in 2006 to 2009, Ted Carter's personal opinion, and this may be not in concert with some of the big Navy planners, was that, that would have been a huge mistake. Uh, we need Truman. We need every aircraft carrier we can have. Truman, and uh, you know, you can read my bio, I've landed on 19 aircraft carriers, all 10 of the Nimitz class, and Truman is the best one we ever put together. She is the best ship, and I would put Stennis as number two, and then I would put Carl Vinson, the one that because I commanded it, number three. But Truman is the best ship we've ever built. She is the best uh, performing ship. She's always had a good crew. Tom Otterbein, when he commissioned that ship, did it right. And uh, she's been on a great glide path ever since. So uh, there's there's some intangibles there in terms of uh, the uniqueness to each of our Nimitz-class carriers that I was afraid would get lost. And, And if you ask me, why is Truman so much better? Because we built two together. Remember, that was that odd time where we decided to build Truman and Stennis together. And the qualities of building them both together raised the bar for that. So I'm hoping as we are thinking about building two Ford classes together, we could reach that same benefit. But there's too much goodness and too much good history in Truman. I'm afraid to lose that. So I think uh, as that discussion happens and goes on, I think Truman will eventually find its way to a complex overall.
0: Well, we had Talmanville. Uh, on the podcast, he wrote an article called Refuel the Truman, It's the Law. Um, and then the chairman of the editorial board um, is uh, Brendan Stickles, a Growler driver. And uh, he is VP Pre- uh, Pence's uh, military assistant. And he was there when he made that pronouncement right. aboard the ship. Um, so, uh, yeah,
2: that we would overhaul it. Yes. Yeah. yeah so, uh, yeah, I saw that and I, I quietly cheered. <laughs> yeah. I think all, all of us did.
1: Yeah.
0: So you uh, you do that your co tour uh, so end to end how long was that let's call it the nuke pipeline from prototype till till you turned over command
2: yeah so I was in the uh, that pipeline from beginning of nuke power school to the day I turned over uh, Carl Vinson nine years nine years and uh, it didn't end there I ended up uh, being the enterprise strike group commander which required a one star admiral with a nuclear background. So arguably I was in the nuclear world doing nuclear type work for twelve years of my naval career. So that's
0: a requirement. If you're gonna be a strike group commander aboard a nuke, you need to have commanded a nuke? Is that is No that-
2: this was unique to
0: enterprise. Oh, was. As she okay. was a you know,
2: fifty one year old aircraft carrier yeah. going on her last deployment. I think Admiral Donald as the head of naval reactors was feeling very more comfortable knowing that the Admiral on board uh, although not signed and in charge of the eight reactors on Enterprise, yeah. had some background in understanding uh, nuclear propulsion. So I was
0: Air Lant when Enterprise was going through their overhaul, and our, your classmate Tom Moore, right. Um, I know was he reactors of the Chang? He was one of those jobs. yeah, um, that's where he made his money for he sure did. Yep. And he's now uh, as we know Navc, um but I just remember, you know, Admiral less was Air Lant, and we'd go over there and um, Admiral Naughton. Was Captain Naughton at that right. time, may he rest in peace. And, and, uh, um, we got to shoot out, or Admiral Les got to shoot off that first, um, you know, uh, the sled, the sled. Yeah. Uh, yeah he right. got to do that. And, and, but I remember it, your process for getting on schedule in the yards is reminiscent of the methodologies that, that then Captain later Admiral Naughton brought to bear. Yeah. Uh, and, and the same sort of, you know, I think if there's a lesson
2: for anybody that's listening out there and understanding, you know, when our ships go into the shipyard, the captain, regardless of whether it's a new construction or a major overhaul or even a six-month availability, you don't relinquish command of the ship. You have to own it. You have to own the process. You have to embed yourself with the company that's doing the work uh, and get them to be successful with your crew. So um, I think that was – at the end of the day, that was what – Defined our success with Carl Vinson.
0: So, what was the highlight? I know there are many, but of your your strike group tenure, what 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 was the highlight in your mind?
2: So, uh, it was really my last kind of flying operational stint. I was uh, the strike group commander from uh, 2011 till uh, really early 2013. But to take Enterprise through its entire workups, knowing it was going to be our final deployment as a 51-year-old aircraft carrier, and to see how well the ship and the crew performed in the heat of the summer in a period pretty similar to what we're seeing right now. If you remember back the summer of 2012, the Iranians were threatening mines in the water. Uh, We went through the Strait of Hormuz with Enterprise 10 times, 10 times. It's still a record for a carrier to go through on any deployment. So uh, most of them were in the daytime uh, with the idea to be visible. And when we said we were warship 65, you know, for those that remember 1988-89, the praying mantis operations when the Enterprise and its air wing pretty much decimated the Iranian uh, naval forces, uh, they gave they paid us great respect. They knew what ship that was. So that was a highlight. And then uh, for me personally, uh, that was the deployment where I broke the uh, aviation carrier landing record, which had been uh, 1,888 carrier landings. I made my 1,889th at the beginning of the deployment. Uh, Mark Fox was 5th Fleet at the time as we entered theater, and I remember going to see him, and I asked him if he was okay, if a a 53-year-old admiral radar intercept officer would be allowed to fly and maybe even still fly in combat, and he gave me a big thumbs up. So I trained up in the Super Hornet, actually flew combat mission into Afghanistan, a nine-hour combat mission, uh, and shortly after that, uh, Fozzie Miller came on board, and I again went in to see him. In fact, we were the backdrop for his change of command in Bahrain, and Fozzie and I know each other way, all the way back when he said, Slapshot, I want you to fly, but I don't want you to fl- You You need to stop flying combat, so I, I respected that, obviously, and, uh, and I kept flying, so I, I'm kind of Tickled when I'm reading this Top Gun 2 stuff that's coming out right now about how a you know a 50 something year old Navy captain can possibly be flying. I was 55 years old as a one star admiral and I was flying every day <laughs> on active duty, um, and I did. I flew almost every day. Uh, most of my missions were at night. I flew a lot of tanker hops, and uh, as I started to add up the numbers, uh, Fozzie called me up on on the ship and said, "How many how many flights would you need to break 2,000?" And I said, well, if I just do normal process and the way we're going, I said, uh, it's a, there's a chance I could get to that number. And he said, well, I just want you to know that uh, naval aviation would, uh, would be way okay if you were to break that number. Because I was a little reluctant to say, you know, is it going to look like I'm making this happen? And all I did was uh, fly with the lieutenants, and I flew the tanker missions. Usually at night it was a, a relatively quiet time, a little bit of risk to be the last guy in the air um, as the admiral. And that only got me burned once. Uh, I had to divert into Bahrain once, but we got right back, and uh, I broke the two thousand carrier trap barrier uh, as we were crossing the Med on our way home. Fantastic! Wow, that's like Bob Beeman's long jump record. You yeah, know, I, the previous record was how many? one 000, uh, one thousand one. I'm sorry, one thousand eight hundred and eighty-eight. Now I'm not wow. the only human to break that barrier. Uh, there's a Brit named Winkle Brown who uh, was a captain in uh, World War II, who learned to fly from the Germans. And he flew uh, all of the early flights in carrier aviation in the World War II era as a test pilot. Now, he got all of his carrier landings in the period of about seven years just doing tests. And he had a lot of operational time. uh, And he was the principal interviewer, if you will, of a lot of the German uh, admirals and generals post-World War II because he could speak the language. Uh, I tried to bring Enterprise home near England so I could meet him on the way home because he was like 95 years old. When we got back, um, we found a way to get in touch with each other, and I did get to go meet him. I flew to London. Uh, We met at the Airmen's Club. He was 97 uh, with his 92-year-old girlfriend, (laughs) and uh, we met at the bar, and uh, he – was as lively and bright as if he had just made a night carrier landing. Holy he sick. brought his logbook. I happened to bring mine too, just because I had a feeling that would happen. Admiral Bill Gortney How gave me books permission. How many do you
0: have? Like five, six? Uh, five. Yeah. Okay.
2: Admiral Bill Gortney gave me permission to make him an honorary naval aviator. He had actually landed an F 4, a U.S. Navy F 4, on the Saratoga. I don't know why he hadn't been given wings of gold already. Uh, so I brought this very cool plaque for him. We met at the Airmen's Club. And the first thing we sat down, he goes, do you drink whiskey? I said, absolutely. So we had a shot of whiskey with a little Mountain Dew in it. <laughs> don't ask. <laughs> and, uh, Does he that put, have a name, whiskey and Mountain Dew? Uh, I don't know. He, Linda was with me. My shop. aide was with me. They were documenting shop. all this, this historic meeting, the only two men to ever have 2,000 landings. And after the first one went down, he he, he brought the bartender. And he goes, "We're going to do that again." And I'm thinking, "Okay, this is going to be good." And uh, his as the second one was served, his lovely girlfriend said, "Now, Winkle, you know you do have to drive <laughs> 97." And he's putting a couple of whiskeys. Wow. Anyway, it was one of those uh, pinch me moments in your life that you never forget. He had been a lone survivor of a squadron. Uh, He had done so many interesting things. uh, And to be there with him at that moment, and he sadly passed away the next year. Um, But I got the chance to meet him. There's a wonderful Netflix uh, piece on him. If anybody ever wants to watch and really learn the history of this amazing man, uh, he was so much more than just his carrier landings.
0: So we only got about five minutes left. Let's pivot to – the your, Naval Academy okay. and, and your your focus, when you think of your term, which your tenure, five years worth, right. um, what, what, what comes to mind there?
2: So I would tell you uh, what I got, what I wanted to do when I got here and through the semantics of making sure that I picked the right topics to go after, whether it be cyber education, leadership and character development programs or increasing our international programs opportunities for midshipmen overseas. It was really all about two things, two things. Uh, One, to make sure that the institution shone so brightly that we were to attract the right men and women to want to come here. And I can say very confidently uh, that we are in a very good place there. We continue to see incredibly high application numbers. We're the highest accept rate for prospective freshmen of any school in the nation at uh, about 87.5% over the last three years. Uh, That term is called yield, the percent of prospective freshmen that say yes to an offer. So, for context, the other two schools that are notables there tend to be Harvard and Stanford. Uh, they tend to be in the low to mid-80s, and we're crushing them. Um, and it's the talent that's coming through the door. The second piece is, and again, it's all about the brigade of midshipmen, is making sure that they are truly ready to join the fleet, uh, be prepared for whatever schools or education that they're going through uh, to continue and serve our Navy, Marine Corps, and the nation. And, of course, history will tell whether we got that right over this crop of the last five years that we've put through the door. Um, But as people go through these value judgments about whether the service academies are a good return on investment, uh, I will tell you I'm walking out the door held held very high that I know the value of the Naval Academy is so much more than even the data that we can produce. Um, The talent that's out there, the number of astronauts that we've produced and continue to produce— um, uh, the, the service that's going on, you're going to see many, many more people run for uh, elected office that are going to come from the service academies, particularly the Naval Academy. There's this this sense of service that's in this generation, the tail end of the millennial generation, the new centennial generation that's in the ranks right now. Um, I am incredibly optimistic for the future. And I said that for the class of 2019. I said boldly that I think it's one of the best, if not the best class we've ever graduated at the Naval Academy. That's a pretty big statement. When you think about some of the amazing hero classes of the you know, the class of 47 and the class of 78, the class of 69 and 68. I mean, there are some amazing notables in those year groups, just among many. But I think this generation, the class of 17, 18, 19, you're going to see similar notables come out of those groups. So so for our listeners who might
1: be groaning at that and saying, ah, millennials, ah, iGen, they're not as tough as we were. They didn't have a real plea bureau. What What's making them better? Why do you say, and you're class of 81 and you flew combat missions, what makes you say, boy, these youngsters right now, 17, 18, 19, are better better right. than we were and and what they're you know the sc- what what's better about the school what's tougher now cuz we we know about things that are aren't as tough right? right but what's tougher now and what's making them better
2: classes well the, the biggest thing i would tell you is uh, the sense of service is still there and uh, i think the millennial generation got a little bit of a bad rap and certainly it's there and it shows up in the centennial generation they highly value education It isn't about coming to a place like the Naval Academy where, you know, it's free education. They get there's a price for that. And that is to make themselves the very best they can be and they know they're going to go serve. The other thing that's different, so much different, is, you know, the volume of information that they get not just available to them, but get hit with nonstop. Uh, The Centennial generation is a group that has never not known high speed internet. Think about that for a second. They've had the high-speed internet at their fingertips since the day they could, you know, learn how to use any type of smartphone. Um, That's a game changer. And uh, their ability to process and manage multiple lines of information, absorb it and do something with it, is far beyond anything that Ward and I could do in a cockpit of an airplane. And I even saw this with the millennial generation that I flew with in a super hornet i mean there's a ton of information coming in through multiple sensors multi- multiple screens i mean i had my hands full just trying to get through all the pages of information and meanwhile the pilot i'm flying with is like playing it like it's a piccolo and and could do it with one hand uh, i was always amazed at how talented they were in the ability to take information and this generation the next generation on is even better at that than that group so um Just that aspect alone is amazing to me. And then this idea that they don't waste their time. You know, when when I was a midshipman here, we might go on one summer training event, maybe a cruise, pro mid, whatever that was. Midshipmen now have three training blocks each one month long, and most of them fill all three blocks up, not with leave, but with training, professional, and internships, They don't want to miss the opportunity. So they're very, very driven, they're motivated, they want to be successful, they want to be competitive, and they want the feedback that tells them how they're doing. And we have set up the mechanisms to make sure that they're getting that kind of feedback. Um, I'm more impressed with this generation, and when I do speak to the older alumni groups, I tell them all that. I looked at my own class of 1981 at our 35th reunion, it was only a couple of years ago, and I said, with a few exceptions in here, none of you could get in today. And I include myself in that. Me
0: too.
2: Um, and, uh, and I know that because I'm deeply involved in admissions, and I look back at my own class admissions, and uh, yeah. we're just at a much, much different cut. And, of course, we attract a different cut now. Um, and that may not be something some people want to hear. It doesn't mean that those that got through and went on and didn't do great things. It's just to speak to the talent that's coming through the front door.
0: Well, Slapshot so has been an amazing run. Um, I'm going to miss you on sidelines. We've had some great times on the sidelines of football games. Uh, I will also point out that you're the only superintendent to ever fly with the Blue Angels while you were a superintendent. Did you fly in five or six? Which
2: I flew in number five, and I, I'll just tell one short 30-second story because this will close us out here. When I left the Naval Academy, go to Pensacola, uh, Lynn and I had just been engaged. I got to Pensacola. I check into the BOQ. Um, and I'm coming back for Thanksgiving. So I had gone down there in the fall, and in the in the Navy Exchange, I bought a postcard of the Blue Angels flying over Pensacola. I sent it back here home, and I said, "Can't wait to get back for Thanksgiving." Oh, by the way, here's me flying with Blue Angels in Blue Angel number five. I circled it on the front of the postcard. Ha ha ha! Maybe someday. And then 35 years later, I actually flew in Blue Angel number five. In a show over the Naval Academy as superintendent, and that was my last flight ever. Amazing. I said, that has to be it.
0: Plus, flying in one of the leader opposing solos is no joke. Like, like no joke. No GC. Punched in the stomach for 45 minutes. Yep, that's right. (laughs) Um, So, that's that's very laudable. So, the best to you and Linda. You guys are going into uh, the second chapter. Um, Great things ahead. Um, and uh, on behalf of the members of the Naval Institute and the staff, thanks for all your support. In fact, it's personified by our three interns here in the room with us. That's been all about your support and the other things we've been able to do uh, associated with the brigade, so thanks for that. And on behalf of uh, the nation, thanks for everything you've done during your time on active duty,
1: and best of luck to
2: you guys in the future. Thank you, Ward, and thank you, Naval Institute, and thank you for all you guys do.
1: All right, that wraps up another amazing episode of the podcast. Uh, And until next time, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.
0: The Persini's podcast is brought to you by Hydroid.
1: Hydroid's small, medium, and
0: large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com.